Hello, and welcome to another podcast of U.S. History Repeated. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today, we continue and conclude our coverage of the Progressive Era with our discussion on the 19th Amendment and the women's suffrage movement. Before I get into the content, I'd like to mention a few friends of our podcast. One, Sweatsito.com, specializing in both men and women's custom velour tracksuits. Promo code HISTORY10, lowercase history, the number 10 to get 10% off of your Sweatsito, and you too can move at the speed of leisure. Next, Elite Book Edits, writing, writing, wherever it's wrong. Visit our friends over at EliteBookEdits.com for all of your editing needs. And lastly, a plug for my published works. Check out The Naughty List and Immortals Revelations by Jimmy LaSalle. You can find them easily on Amazon. Take a look. Always interested in what our listeners think. Love to hear about it. Shoot me a review on Amazon. And now to discuss women's suffrage, one of my favorite women and our resident history expert, Jean Antonakis. Jeannie, take it away. Okay, so today we are going to discuss the last of the progressive era amendments. When people think of the 19th Amendment, they often incorrectly assume that all women receive the right to vote at the same time. By 1920, 15 states had full suffrage and more had what is often referred to as partial suffrage. Women could vote in some elections, but not all. Think more local elections or primaries or in the case of school board elections. As many women as there were in support of suffrage, you also have anti-suffrage groups which were led by women. Just to give you an example, in 1911, anti-suffragists formed the National Association Opposed to Women's Suffrage, also referred to as NAOWS, and it was led by a woman by the name of Josephine Dodge. Their publication was called The Women's Protest, and it discussed their position on suffrage. The road to suffrage is a complex Issue. And in order to more fully understand what happened in 1920 and why the movement gained steam during the progressive era, we have to go back in time a bit. Is it safe to say that the road to suffrage does not have anything to do with marriage? No, quite the contrary. You know, the road to <laughs> suffrage, you know, when women marry. Or is that that's suffering? Well, depends on what woman you ask. <laughs> I'm but, joking. I'm joking. For women, when they married, they lost any rights they had. You know, if a woman was unmarried and she worked, she kept her salary. If she owned things, they were hers. But when she married, it all went into her husband's name. It was one of the reasons why um, famed suffragist Susan B. Anthony never married. But we'll get into that. Having the right to vote was critical if women were going to be able to secure other rights within American society. Women did not have access to the same education as men, the same jobs as men. The most prestigious schools only admitted men. When women were employed in the few occupations that were deemed appropriate, such as teaching, they were paid less than their male counterparts. For unmarried women, they were able to own property, to enter into legal contracts, to sue and be sued. Once a woman was married, they were not able to own property. They could not enter into legal contracts. If they were sued, it was their husbands who were sued. Once a woman married, 
she lost those rights. When women married, they promised to obey. Men did not have to promise to obey in their vows. Her husband became a master of sorts. A woman is given away by her father. Her hand is symbolically given to her husband. There was a reason for that. Hence the term hand in marriage. Hand in marriage. Hand in or marriage. even asking a father's, like, is it okay if I ask? You know, those mm-hmm. all kind of stem back to those times. Susan Bean Anthony, as I mentioned earlier, she never married as a result of that. Under the eyes of the law, women belonged to their husbands, their property, inheritance, wages. It all went to their husbands. In 1848, New York passed the Married Women's Property Act, and this law allowed a woman to own and control their property. Other states used this law to pass similar ones. So in 1848, you're just starting to see certain laws being passed in some states to protect women's rights. For women, their rights were few. If their husband gambled away his earnings, she had little recourse. If he was violent and abusive, she had little recourse. In the eyes of the law, she was the equivalent to a child. Even in cases of divorce, which were not common, men tended to be given the children. Only very young children or daughters were given custody to women in cases of divorce. When talking of leaders of the women's suffrage movement, there are a number of heavy hitters. Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who began their work together after being refused entry to an abolitionist conference because of their gender, um, and after a chance meeting at a tea party some years later, they linked back together and began working to secure women's voting rights. They hosted a women's rights convention, which eventually becomes known as the Seneca Falls Convention of 1848. The Seneca Falls Convention was held in upstate New York over the time period of two days. The first day, only women were allowed to attend. And on the second day, the meeting was opened to men as well. This event is known as the beginning of the women's suffrage movement. At the Seneca Falls Convention, the Declaration of Sentiments, which was read and signed by both male and female attendees, it was written by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. The Declaration of Sentiments is modeled after the Declaration of Independence, declaring that both men and women were equal. The docu- all men and women are yeah. created equal. Yes. I mean, if you look back to the Declaration of Independence, one of the things that I always tried to hammer home to my students was that notion of all men are created equal. Over the course of our country's history, we have had to change. Well, who is defined in that? Who is men? At first, it was just white males over the age of 21 who owned property. But over time, that phrase is extended to different groups. They probably should have used the term people. Well, they didn't mean people. They meant all men. individuals, all individuals. Yes, they were very clear equal. and concise in what they meant. Mm-hmm. The document highlighted the areas within society where women were held as second-class citizens and were unequal to men, access to education, equal protection under the law, the right to enter into legal contracts, property ownership, and of course, the right to vote. They argued that the only time women were recognized by the government was in term of taxes when it was time to pay the piper. 
Today in Seneca Falls, there is a wonderful museum. You can see the Wesleyan Chapel where 300 people attended the convention. Uh, you can see Elizabeth Cady Stanton's house where she raised her seven children. That's right. Seven. Seven. Yep. And the home of Mary McClintock, where the Declaration of Sentiments was written. When you, Before you said that it was when it was time to pay the piper, that's when the government recognized female contribution. Mm-hmm. Couldn't that be termed taxation without representation? Certainly. I would could. think so. There were some states and territories that allowed women the right to vote. New Jersey, for example, gave women the right to vote until 1807 when they took it away. In 1869, Wyoming became the first state to give women the right to vote. Many Western states and territories granted women full citizenship and the right to vote if they were over the age of 21. At this point, keep in mind the voting age is still 21. Susan B. Anthony is probably the most famous of the leaders of the women's suffrage movement. She comes from a family of activists. She was raised a Quaker She was guided by the belief that all people are equal in the eyes of God. She was also a supporter of the abolitionist and temperance movements. She met Elizabeth Cady Stanton in 1851, and they formed a lifelong bond, often traveling around the country and giving speeches in support of suffrage. In 1872, Susan B. Anthony was arrested and fined $100 for voting illegally. Today, many women in particular will go to her gravesite on election day and place their I voted stickers on her grave. Elizabeth Cady Stanton doesn't get the same praise as Susan B. Anthony, but I think she should. She came from a wealthy family and like Anthony also supported abolition. She would write the speeches and Susan B. Anthony, who was unmarried and had no children, was able to travel around the country giving those speeches. She helped to author two books. One was a history of the suffrage movement, and the other was called The Woman's Bible, which discussed the way women were portrayed throughout the Bible and how that portrayal created a bias. Elizabeth Cady Stanton was seen as too radical as a result of this book. And because her work in support of reproductive rights for women, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton you know, really could not have led more different lives. So Susan B. Anthony is put on this pedestal. Elizabeth Cady Stanton is writing the words that's coming out of Susan B. Anthony's mouth. She's kind of shunned because of her views, especially on women's reproductive rights. But Stanton's role as wife and mother limited her ability to do as much as Susan B. Anthony. But I would go as far to say that without Elizabeth Cady Stanton, you don't have Susan B. Anthony, but take that for what you will. Lucretia Mott, someone else we have to talk about, she helped to organize the Seneca Falls Convention with Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She was a member of William Lloyd Garrison's Anti-Slavery Society and helped to found the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. I mentioned earlier that her and Elizabeth Cady Stanton's inability to participate at the convention in London led them to organize the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 after another chance meeting at a tea party of all places. She worked to further the movement for women's equality and her speech titled A Discourse on Woman was published and widely read. In it, she made the case for granting political rights for women 
and how current conditions for married women and a lack of access to higher education led women to be considered inferior to men. Not all women suffragists were white women. Many women of color were leaders within the movement. In our podcast on reform movements of the 1840s, we talked about people like Sojourner Truth and Fanny Barrier Williams. If you didn't listen to that podcast, definitely go back and listen. In 1869, the National Women's Suffrage Association was created by a woman by the name of Lucy Stone, Henry Blackwell, Mary Livermore, among other people. And one of the things that they kind of quoted above the titles of wife and mother, which although dear are transitory and accidental, there is the title of human being, which precedes and outranks every other. And that's important. They're saying, yes, I'm a woman. Yes, I'm a wife. Yes, I'm a mother. But before all of those other titles, the very core of me, I am a human being. The NWSA was more radical and created by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. It's known as the NWSA. They encouraged women to attempt to vote when they were arrested to use the court system to bring about change. Each group working to gain the right to vote on their own. But in 1890, these groups merged and became known as the National American Women's Suffrage Association, NASA, N-A-W-S-A. Susan B. Anthony was the first president and then Carrie Chapman Catt. The progressive era and World War I would both embolden the arguments for women to gain the right to vote. On May 21st, 1910, around 10,000 New Yorkers held the largest rally up to that point in Union Square to demand that women receive the right to vote. Black women had to create their own suffrage groups. Only in some instances were black and white suffragists working alongside each other. While both had a common goal of attaining the right to vote, understand that there were also women who would not support suffrage if it meant extending the vote to women of color as well. Fear of alienating Southern allies was another great reason for the separation of movements. Articles printed in The Crisis, which was the magazine for the NAACP, they printed articles about the growing importance and the push for women of color to gain the right to vote. The social, political, and economic future of Black Americans, especially Black women, depended on gaining the right to vote for their future and for their children's future. So Black men were able to vote prior to women. And now they were trying to separate that from all happening at the same time, all women. So, yeah. So when the 15th Amendment was passed, which did not guarantee the right to vote to black males, it just said that the right to vote could not be denied or abridged on the basis of race or previous condition of servitude. It's what kind of opened up the door for all those loopholes. And then Um, we covered that in the previous podcast on um, uh, reconstruction, reconstruction. But but many abolitionists were also suffragists and many suffragists were also abolitionists and they are working alongside each other. And when the wording for the 15th Amendment is being formulated, women are pushing, hey, we need to add gender here. And they're, you know, women are told, hey, this is not your time. This is not going to get passed. So you have to look at this from the perspective of the federal government was more willing to give black men the right to vote than they were women. It had more to do with maintaining a social order. 
if only this certain group is allowed to vote and they're kind of dictating policy, everybody else stays in their lane. You know, one of the major fears of women voting, and you can see it in a lot of the political cartoons of the time, this whole idea that if women received the right to vote, the world would kind of be standing on its head. You have these political cartoons of men dressed in, you know, very feminine clothing and women dressed in very masculine clothing. And the men are going to be the left home with the babies and the women are going to be doing all these things. There was this fear, well, what, what's going to happen to society? You know, if women get the right to vote, all these other things are going to pass. And women are saying, yeah, if we get the right to vote, all of these other doors, we're going to kind of going to begin to be able to get open to us right now. They are closed. They're locked. We can't get in. We can't even see in through the door, but we'd like to get the right to vote. And so what are women doing? They're creating marches. They're creating movements. They're creating literature. In October of 1915, you have 25,000 women who marched along Fifth Avenue in New York City in support of suffrage. A New York Times article issued a warning about what would happen if women got the right to vote. And this is a quote from that article. They will play havoc for themselves and society. And if women were granted the suffrage, they would demand all the rights that implies. It is not possible to think of women as soldiers, sailors, police, patrolmen, or firemen, end quote. One of my favorite stories was in 1916 when President Woodrow Wilson traveled to New York for the celebration planned at the Statue of Liberty for its switch to electricity. The switch was to be triggered by President Woodrow Wilson while aboard the presidential yacht, which was called the Mayflower, and suffragists wished to bomb. And I, you know, think of that in quotation marks, bomb the president with suffrage petitions and pamphlets from the air. And the plane was piloted by a woman, a woman by the by the name of uh, Leda Richburg Hornsby. And uh, how awesome is that? So here's the president. He's aboard this yacht. And then suddenly all these pamphlets are come floating down on his head. You know, Mr. President, support women's suffrage. Going back to Carrie Chapman Catt, her focus was to secure the rights of women to vote in New York. And that finally paid off in 1917. She believed that the strategy of getting individual states to pass suffrage laws would push forward an eventual federal law or amendment granting women the right to vote across the country. On election day, the New York Times printed a quote by Carrie Chapman Catt saying the following, remember that our country is fighting for democracy, for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own government. Vote for women's suffrage because it is part of the struggle toward democracy. And this quote was printed in the very same newspaper that years earlier printed an article saying the world would go to hell in a handbasket if women were given the right to vote. So you see kind of the pendulum swimming, you know, spinning in the opposite in the opposite direction that there is this change in the way people are viewing suffrage. The first national march for suffrage took place a few years earlier on March 3rd, 1913. The women's suffrage procession was the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. The Capitol was a buzz with people planning to attend it. You have 5,000 suffragettes who marched along Pennsylvania Avenue. 
the procession was meticulously planned and was full of symbolism. Women were organized into different state delegations or they marched based on their professions or wearing school colors. Many of the spectators began to attack the women participating in the march. It got so violent that the U.S. Army troops had to intervene so that the march could continue. And over 100 women had to be hospitalized for their injuries. And Woodrow Wilson, who was the president-elect, when he arrived in Washington, D.C., he was surprised that nobody, you know, there was no fanfare. There was nobody there to greet him. Well, because there was this march going on. In the quest to obtain the right to vote, there were also protests in front of the White House. And whitehousehistory.org is a great resource for this topic. The first protest took place on January 10th, 1917. Twelve women stood in front of the White House holding banners in support of women's suffrage. Alice Paul later said that the real turning point came when people continued to volunteer to picket, knowing full well that they would be arrested. These protests were sponsored by the NWP, the National Women's Party, between 1917 and 1919. Over 500 women were arrested for picketing in front of the White House. They were charged with obstruction of traffic. A of traffic? Charge. Yes. Obstruction of traffic. Six days a week, day in and day out, no matter the weather, the women stood in front of the White House. When the United States entered World War I, many people viewed the continued protests as unpatriotic. This new generation of women learned from the mistakes of their predecessors. Calls for suffrage were put on hold with the outbreak of the Civil War, and this was something that they regretted doing. They would not make the same mistake again. Fool me once. You know, shame on you. Fool me twice. I'm not going to stop. We're going to keep doing this. So the women who protested in front of the White House were often called silent sentinels. And they stood in front of the White House holding banners, quoting President Woodrow Wilson or asking him how long American women would have to wait for liberty. Many thought that while men were fighting oppression in Europe, it was unpatriotic for women to protest in front of the White House. And unlike during the Civil War, women did not stop their fight for equality and the right to vote. A wonderful film to show on this is Iron Jawed Angels. And it does a wonderful job of showing really the tireless dedication and even, you know, the hunger strikes that many women went on while in prison for trying to gain the right to vote. Another favorite of mine is the book called Jailed for Freedom by suffragist Doris Stevens. And she wrote a firsthand account of what she went through to secure liberty for women. So if you're looking for, you know, primary source materials for your classroom, that's a great option. In January of 1878, a senator from California named Aaron Sargent introduced an amendment to the Constitution. And this is a direct quote from the bill that was introduced. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. At his request, the Senate allowed suffragettes to testify before Congress. The bill would not be voted on until 1887, and it was defeated. And if you go to wilsoncenter.org, they have a great 
discussion of Woodrow Wilson's stance on suffrage. And we're going to get more into this on our upcoming podcasts on Wilson, but his views change. When he enters office in 1913, they describe his position as being lukewarm at best. And this is a man who has three daughters, keep in mind. In his 1918 address to Congress, President Wilson stated, we have made partners of women in this war. Shall we admit them only to a partnership of suffering and sacrifice and toil and not to a partnership of privilege and right? So in the beginning of his presidency, he is not a supporter of suffrage, but by the end of his second term, he is very much a supporter of it. Woodrow Wilson is a husband, a father of three daughters. One of his daughters, Jesse Woodrow Wilson Sayre, who was married by the White House, by the way, was a vocal supporter of women's suffrage. By his second term of office, his stance begins to change. His support doesn't stop at that speech that I quoted earlier. He made continuous appeals to members of Congress. U.S. involvement in World War I and the role that women undertook on the home front couldn't be ignored. With all able-bodied men of a certain age off fighting in Europe, women are tilling the fields. They are harvesting crops. They are working jobs that men had once occupied in industries that they had been previously banned from. Multiple attempts at a vote on a constitutional amendment failed in 1918 and 1919. On June 4th, 1919, the resolution finally had enough votes to be sent to the states for ratification. By the summer of 1920, 35 states had approved the amendment. Tennessee became a battleground of sorts. Eight states had rejected the amendment, and five states hadn't voted on it yet. The 19th Amendment was approved by the final state needed in August of 1920 by one vote. So next time you think your vote doesn't count, remember that it was approved by the final state by one vote. Representative Harry T. Byrne of Tennessee, who changed his vote after receiving a telegram from his mother. Uh Oh, oh, yeah. There were many celebrations, but many suffragists knew that their work wasn't over. Many, including Alice Paul, got to work in drafting an equal rights amendment. So they knew that even though, yes, you know, victory, we've gotten this past, it was very much looked at this is the beginning. We are not at the top of the mountain, or we have, you know, we've conquered one mountain. Now we have others before us. Let's continue working. Well, not not only were they able to vote, but being able to vote in these elections now makes them a constituency that needs to be heard. Yes. But it was also, how do you convince people that I'm a constituency that needs to be heard? What kind of issues? Well, you're talking about 50% of the population. If you don't have the female vote as a candidate, you can very easily lose an election. Yes, but if you are pushing too much for women, you're now also going to alienate the other 50% of the population. You have to understand that this is still a time where women's issues are not, you don't have a big support base from men. You have some. When we talk about the passage of the 19th Amendment and how women won the right to vote, not all women would immediately benefit from it. And this is what I think most people don't understand. For Asian women, 
the Chinese Exclusion Act banned Chinese women from voting until it was repealed in 1943. Jim Crow laws would limit women of color from being able to exercise their right to vote in many states until the mid-1960s. Women getting the right to vote was an important stepping stone to equality that many of the activists we discussed, you know, they didn't live to see. So much was needed to be done. Access to education, employment in a variety of fields would take decades more. Up to as recently as 1970, women needed to have their husband's signature in order to be able to get a credit card. Women are still paid less in some industries as their male counterparts. White women are often paid more than women of color. The movement of women's equality is still very much alive and well. And I'd like to end our discussion today with a quote from Abigail Scott Dunaway. She was a suffragist and she says, the young women of today, free to study, to speak, to write, to choose their occupation, should remember that every inch of this freedom was bought for them at a great price. It is for them to show their gratitude by helping onward the reforms of their own times, by spreading the light of freedom and of truth still wider. The debt that each generation owes to the past, it must pay to the future. And I think that's a very important quote because each and every one of us owes a debt to those who came before us far greater than we realize. Do the work that needs to be done so that the generations of women that come after us will not have to be told that they can be anything they want to be, for that will already be understood by them. Okay, thank you, Jean. This concludes our coverage of the Progressive Era, six podcasts in total. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parler. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.